From 2 Kings chapter 20, we read in the Old Testament, then we turn to the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2. Let's stand to hear the Word of God. 2 Kings chapter 20. Just a few words of context. This is Hezekiah, one of the greatest and best kings of the Old Testament, who lived an exemplary life, led Israel in great revival, spiritual revival, pushed back the enemies of Israel, Assyria, was notable in so many ways for righteousness. He was sick. He prayed to God for deliverance. God, deliverance, God healed him and gave him more life. And in that period at the end of his life where he was given more life, he fell into sin and the sin was pride. He, he got proud of the riches and kingdom that God had entrusted to him as a steward. And in that, we read of that moment of pride right here from 2 Kings, beginning at verse 12, 20 and verse 12. At that time, Baradoc Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah was attentive to them and showed them all the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. And Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? And Hezek so Hezekiah said, They came from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? Now to Matthew. Matthew, we're going to start at chapter 1 and verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is that is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. 
So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. They sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Turn to Matthew chapter 2. Looking at the verses 1 through 12 this morning in the preaching of the Word concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. A few words about if you're, if you're newer here or visiting with us, as you can see, we are very plain and simple in what we do. The room in which we're in hasn't changed over the last weeks. And. Uh, When it comes to the idea of Christmas traditions and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd say a few things. One, be careful not to confuse the passing cultural things of this world, Christmas trees and presents and all those other things. There's a danger in wrapping up a great mix of sentimentality and passing traditions with what the Word says about Jesus Christ and His birth. At the end of the year, it's good and right to remember the birth of Christ. We've been counting time by the birth of Christ for the last 2,020 years. His birth marks the great dividing line in human history. And so we do well at the end of another year to remember that birth again. And particularly and especially, not with any sentimentality, but with the Word in hand. And to remember what the Word says to us about Jesus Christ. And that to have our thoughts of Him formed by the Word. We're in the Gospel of Matthew. It is the first book in the New Testament. And it opens with a striking statement about Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The New Testament is the proclamation of the birth of a son. A son who is identified particularly in this gospel as the son of David and the son of Abraham. In those words, we have a summary of all the promises of the Old Testament concerning our Lord Jesus Christ. We are those words moving from the shadowlands of the Old Testament to the full light and glory of the New Covenant. We are moving from promise to fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. He is the Son of David. 
David, who would sit on the throne of David forever, as God promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He also is the son of Abraham. Abraham to whom all, in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He's the Savior of sinners. In the opening chapters of, of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2 and verse 12, we have the introduction to Jesus Christ, actually at the end of chapter 2, comprises the entirety of the Gospel of Matthew's narrative concerning Jesus Christ as a child. We learn a few things in these opening verses in chapter 1 and verses 18 to 25. We learn that He came to be a Savior. The Presbyterian theologian, the late 1800s and early 1900s, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, said that the principle of the Incarnation is this, and he's right, that Jesus came to be a Savior for sinners. He came in the flesh so that He in the flesh could die on a cross and bear our sins and set us free. That's what He came to do. That is the central work of the incarnate Son of God. He's a Savior. You shall call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. This is what He came to do. But the opening of the Gospel of Matthew in Matthew chapter 2 tells us a second thing about Jesus, that He not only came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, but that He is a king. And He's not just a king or any king, but that He is the king. And we're going to look at that from the visit of the wise men. What, how does this narrative of the visit of the wise men function in the Gospel of Matthew to introduce this great theme which runs through the Gospels that Jesus Christ is not only King of the Jews, but by the end of the Gospel of Matthew, that all authority has been given to Him in heaven and on earth. That He is now the ruler of the universe. The Gospel of Matthew makes it clear that this is who He is from the very beginning in the visit of the wise men. Well, let's go into the text a little bit and we're going to rehearse the visit, we're going to look at the real importance of that visit, what it signifies that Jesus Christ is a king, and then we're going to see how you can respond to that simple truth. He is the king of the Jews, the king of glory. Rehearse, understand the central thing communicated about Jesus Christ, and then your response. So first, rehearse the visit. They came after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of Herod the king, verse 1, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. They're sometimes called magi because the word in Greek here is magi. The magi, the wise men, came to Jesus, born in Bethlehem. They came to Jerusalem. This verse is so packed with significance already. Bethlehem, the house of bread, the city of David. Jerusalem, the city of the great king, the king of peace. Jesus Christ, they came, what for and why? Saying, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? They had received a supernatural sign, for we have seen his star in the east and we have come to worship him. These magi, let's think a little bit more about their identity. Who were they? They're wise men or magi? What kind of people would these have been? Well, we get an idea from the book of Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar had in his court wise men, advisors. You have the similar thing actually in Pharaoh's court where you have the magicians, the wise men, who advise Pharaoh. You have it in every 
A president has a cabinet, a king has a court, and in that court there's advisors. And these advisors, these wise men, they would have been the university educated, they would have understood astronomy and science and history. They were learned men. They come, here it appears, as representatives of a kingdom to the east. They saw his star in the east and they have come to worship him. Supernatural sign of the coming of Jesus Christ, this star. Now, some people think, okay, like, really? Was there really a star that appeared in human history? Did that star really move over Jerusalem? And if you are asking that question this morning, there are other questions already in the text. Jesus was in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural conception. He would die on the cross. He would rise again. He would do miracles. He would raise the dead. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. His coming is surrounded by supernatural signs of the unbounded power of God. The star is one of them. They not only know about the star, but they know that there's going to be a king of the Jews. How would they know that? Probably, if they're from Babylon, which seems likely, or Persia, they would have heard of the coming of a Savior through a ministry of a man, for example, like Daniel, and, and the Jews of the exile, which would have had all the Old Testament promises of a coming king of the Jews. They may have been men who had been reading the Bible, praying, waiting for a Messiah, King of the Jews, that they had grabbed hold of what God had promised for all humanity, a Savior who is to come. And by this supernatural sign, combined with what they knew, they were on the hunt for the King, the King of the Jews. How many were there? The text doesn't say, just so you know. We three kings of Orient are. There is no, that is a fanciful speculation. We don't know. But what we do know is that there was a substantial presence. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, these men walking around Jerusalem asking questions, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. It's likely that this was a caravan of sorts, that Jerusalem has the arrival of this significant official delegation. It comes in and turns the whole city upside down, looking for the king of the Jews. Where is he who has been born? They're announcing his birth even. He's already been born. We know that. They're asking because they've seen a supernatural sign which has been visible to all the world. Verse 2, the effect of them is an upheaval in Jerusalem. Herod is troubled. Verse 4, he gathers the council, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, and he asks them a burning question, where is the Christ to be born? Where is the great son of David? Where's the Messiah going to be born? He clearly was not an avid reader of the Bible. If he was, he would have known already from Micah chapter 5, but he asks the learned men of Israel, and they tell him, Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, in the royal city of the royal tribe Judah, in Bethlehem, Would be born, look at verse 6, not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They search the scripture, they answer the question, Bethlehem, Herod, that's where he's coming to. So Herod then summons the wise men. Verse 7, secretly, he asks them, when did that star appear? As a question, just, I'm just curious, we'll see why later. And then he said, go and search carefully for the young child in Bethlehem. When you found him, bring me back word, because I'd like to go worship him too. So, when they heard the king, 
The star supernaturally leads them like the pillar of fire and cloud of wilderness. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy, verse 10. And then they came into the house. Listen to this. You, you've got to get this. These are representatives of a powerful kingdom. University educated. They're rich. They're loaded with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They come into a little house in Bethlehem up to this point, you could not have picked out from any other house except for supernatural divine guidance. And what do they do? They fall on their faces and they worship. They worship. Understand this. They believe that this child already was born a king worthy of worship. And they gave him gifts, treasures, Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, being divinely worn in a dream, they didn't tell Herod they left another way. What does this mean? And how does it help us understand that Jesus Christ is two things? The son of David and the son of Abraham. Well, the first thing is that the visit of the wise men tells us that he is a king in general. The wise men understood. King. They get it. The representatives from another realm have come to recognize this Jesus for who he is, Christ as a king, born king of the Jews. This is remarkable because no one else sees it right now. He's just in a little house in Bethlehem. No one else sees what's going on. They see with the eyes of faith that there's a king that's been born. They don't just see it. Herod knows. How do we know that Herod knows? Well, who was Herod? Does anyone know what his family line was? He's from the line of Esau, at war with the line of Jacob. He's a pretender to the throne. He knows that he doesn't have rights to rule in Israel. And when he hears that a king of the Jews has been born, he knows about the line of David at least, and he knows that a challenger has risen. He's not expecting a minor religious teacher, a pacifist, a philosopher, Herod's expecting a king that would be a challenger for his own power. And we know this because once the wise men leave and they don't tell him where they found Jesus, he goes to Bethlehem and he slaughters every child two years and under because he needs to kill that king. Because if he doesn't kill that king, that king will destroy him. Everyone is expecting a figure with real power. Not a moral example, just not just a teacher, but a king. And Jesus identifies himself as a king. In Matthew 18 and verse 23, he is a king in a triumphal entry. Hosanna to the king of glory. Luke chapter 23, Pilate, are you a king? It is as you say, the inscription on the cross, king of the Jews. He declares his own authority. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In the final judgment, he will be the king of glory, the king of the Jews, the king of the world that will judge the living and the dead. You will see him as a king, you will see him with your own eyes as a king. But Matthew doesn't want us to just see him as a king, but as the king, the eternal divine king promised in the old covenant. Now we're going to get back to this passage we read from 2 Kings. What is happening? The line of David, you know what happened to it. Promises were given, a king would sit on the throne forever. It slowly declines more and more to idolatry and rebellion until what happens at last 
Israel is taken into Babylon. What we just read is that under Hezekiah, when he was proud and his heart was lifted up before God, he opened his treasury, including his gold and his spices, his armory, everything that he had. He opened the doors when the ambassadors of Babylon came to him and he said, here, look what I have. You want to see something? Look what I've been given. Look at these mountains of gold. Look at these spices. Look at these war machines. Look at who I am. When his heart was lifted up, what happened? What happened when his heart was lifted up? God sent Isaiah, and Isaiah said, Because you have done this, Hezekiah, you've got to listen to this carefully. Because you, so It's one of the last great kings of the Old Testament, a man who we would have thought perhaps was going to be the Savior of Israel. Because you've done this, Hezekiah, I will take it all away, including the gold and the spices. I will remove the glory of the Davidic kingdom. I will bring you into exile. Your sons will be in Babylon. Some of them will be eunuchs. And the line of promise, the line of David, will hang by a thin thread. And the glory and power of the kings of Israel will be no more. And only a few short years later, the southern kingdom, Judah, Jerusalem, is destroyed. And the line of David never is restored to its original prominence. Until this day, when a group of wise men, perhaps from Babylon, came bearing their treasures, gold and spices, frankincense and myrrh, And the Father in heaven in His divine providence sending the message of the King of the Jews, the star in the heavens, caused them in faith to load up their caravan with treasures and bring them back and lay them at the feet of the little child in Bethlehem to declare to the world that the line of the kingdom of David on which a king the throne on which a king would sit forever is being restored in this one. That the king of the Jews has been born. The one who rules the kingdoms of this world right now. And so we have the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Abraham and you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. In the paradox here in the, in the text is Gentiles come. I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. Gentiles come with the gifts that signal the glory of the kingdom, believing in Jesus Christ even at His birth. The down payment of the Gentile inheritance here given to Jesus Christ in these men. The fulfillment of the promise to David, one who would sit on the throne forever. The signal in human history. And if you read, if you understand ancient Near Eastern culture, the way you would signal to a king that he is glorious. Think of uh, the Queen of Sheba when she came from from Africa to Solomon with caravans loaded with gifts to lay at his feet to declare Solomon's greatness and glory. This is what's happening here. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the royal son, born a child, yet a king. A savior who would die and a king who would reign in one person, forever Jesus Christ. Now, what do you think of this Jesus Christ? Here's the question. What do most people think of the wise men? Getting back to our 
unhelpful traditions, and I might step on some of your toes if you have a nativity scene at home. First of all, there's shouldn't make images of the Lord Jesus Christ and his humanity. Second thing is that usually these little things you can buy have a picture of the uh, little wise men coming. Well, first of all, this happens long after the birth of Jesus and his being laid in the manger, it, perhaps up to two years later. The text doesn't say there were three kings. The essence of this story is not some sort of sentimental, romantic picture of people giving gifts to a baby. It is the signal of God in human history that a king has arrived. You need to understand the difference. You need to see this through the prism and lens of the word. God's message to humanity through the wise men and the word and the star it doesn't matter who, whether rich or poor, ignorant or learned, that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that the child of Bethlehem is nothing less than the Son of God, the Lord of glory, and the inheritor of David's throne. So a pressing question for you, what do you think of him? There's a lot of people who will go through these weeks coming ahead with some sentimental small view of Jesus Christ that is so disconnected from the reality of who he is right now. We'll get to that in a minute. What do you think of this Jesus? Our age of skepticism, people will try and cut this narrative to 100 pieces and say, well, stars don't move and that couldn't have happened. And No, this was God signaling in human history that this is his son. Sentimental Christianity, I said a moment ago, just wants to see a story about a nice little baby in a manger. What God is saying to you is, this child is a king. You know that this child would grow up and ask this question of his own disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I am? Matthew chapter 1 is already answered with the urgency that he is the savior of sinners, Emmanuel, God with us, that he came to die on a cross to save his people from their sins. And that you need to run to him in faith, hold to him, and he'll wash all your sins away. That's the promise of Jesus. Matthew chapter 2 tells you that the one you're coming to is a king. And he intends to rule the world he does now and rule your life and rule your heart and rule everything about you and your world. What happened when he came? Well, let me give you two responses. In the text, going back to the story, some people said, we don't care. Worse than that, they said, we hate him. It's actually impossible not, it, let me say this carefully, you can have no middle ground about Jesus Christ. There's not a way to be halfway you either fall down in worship or you run in fear and hatred. There's no middle ground with a king that rules the universe. You can't have a middle ground. It's clear from the text. Herod understood that the coming of Jesus Christ represented a direct challenge to his power, his throne. And he is a good representative of natural humanity. What it's like to be without God and without hope in the world when the message of Jesus Christ as the king who rules the world and the judge of the heavens and the earth, what do people normally do? They say, forget it. I will not bow. I will not 
It's an old poem, Invictive. It matters not how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the war cry of the natural man against Jesus Christ. Let us burst their bonds, cast their cords from us. I live free. No one tells me what to do. Matthew chapter 2 says a king has entered the world. And he rules the universe and he rules your life. Whether you like it or not. Herod was so afraid of the rise of this king. What did he do? Chapter 16 through 18, he killed every child in, Babel, in, in Bethlehem, slaughtered them with the edge of the sword. Because he knew that if the king of the Jews was here, he was in trouble. What happened to the next group? This one's even more sobering. Herod gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together. All Jerusalem was troubled. How far was Bethlehem from Jerusalem? Do you know? Let me count it up for you. Six miles. How far is Babylon from Jerusalem? A thousand miles. There's a group of people in Jerusalem who heard people come say there's a star, a supernatural sign in the heavens. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? They went and they, Herod said, okay, how do we figure out where he'll be born? They opened their Bibles and they said, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. The ruler of Israel is going to be born in Bethlehem six miles away. They had the Bible, they had the divine intervention of the announcement, and they didn't even go. They didn't move. Thousand miles versus six miles. They had the Bible, they knew where he would be born, they didn't worship. You know, you can know a lot about Jesus and not care about him at all. These people did. They didn't care. Six miles, they couldn't even be bothered to go. More than this, I want you to see what's happening in this opening chapter, right? Or the second chapter of Matthew. What do we have here? We have a Herod and we have a Sanhedrin. And we already have an attempted crucifixion when Herod goes to Bethlehem to kill everyone. You understand that the natural instinct of the human heart when faced with Jesus Christ is to seek to destroy him because we do not by nature submit to him. We have a foreshadowing of the cross when he was a babe. We have the whole hatred rebellion of humanity on display, either in apathy, who cares, or in murder when you do a rape. What do we have in sum total here? The rejection of Jesus Christ. But then we have these men. Humble faith. They're wise. They're magi. They're rich. They come with a camel train loaded with treasures. Look at, the verse, look at verse 11. When they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The last two were spices from the sap of aromatic trees, very expensive to gather. And they were signals together of their profound submission to and worship of a king. In the ancient Near East, if you wanted to honor a king, I just mentioned uh, the Queen of Sheba coming to Solomon, but after I preached this morning, 
a member of our church came and told me that he was in Istanbul years ago and he was, he was there seeing the halls of treasures that were brought in tribute to the caliphs that ruled the Ottoman Empire. He said, if you get your eyes on that gold and that treasure, this is re- remarkable. This is being brought to the feet of a baby who's unknown to the world. They know who he is. And they don't just bring that. They fall on their faces and they worship. You know, when they were in Babylon long ago, think about what they had to do. They had to know that there was going to be a king of the Jews. They had to see the star somehow in God's mercy. By his Holy Spirit, he put the two together. They had to load up that camel train. They had to go a thousand miles. It reminds me of what Peter wrote to the church in 1 Peter about those who love Jesus now. Whom having not seen, you love. They loved him before they got there. And they worshipped him before they arrived. And they believed everything God had to say about the coming of his son. They were Gentiles. They were from far away. And they embraced Jesus Christ. Saving faith as they rested upon Christ alone as Savior and King, receiving the revelation of God as true. Quiet trust in his remarkable power as the King of the Jews. How about you? Do you think of Jesus Christ as a king? Let me explain something to you about him right now. He's not in a manger. He's not in Bethlehem. He's not in Palestine. Where is he right now? You ever think about that? Where is he right now? Right now... He's at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. What is he? He's God and man. He has the same body. He exists as the God-man in the flesh right now at the right hand of the Father, the same person now who the wise men bowed before when he was a child. Same human being. But since that day, what has he done? He died on a cross where his name was the King of the Jews. And in dying on the cross, he crushed the power of the dark kingdom, Satan, and he paid for all our sins. And then in rising again from the dead, what did he do? He declared what was shrouded in Matthew 2, what you see just for a moment with the wise men, comes to full power and glory when he stands up in the grave and walks out as the ruler of the universe to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. And then he ascended into heaven and he rules over everything right now. And everything that has happened in 2020, you see all those 2020 memes everywhere? I'll tell you something about 2020. Everything that has happened in this year to every detail of your life has been under the rule and wisdom and divine power of the King of glory who rules the universe, Jesus Christ, who now sits on the throne of David forever. And is not a small child in Bethlehem, but is a full-grown, glorified man, God at the same time, who rules everything. Total submission is pictured here in the wise men. How about you? It's one thing to receive him as a savior. Everyone says, I need forgiveness of sins, and everyone says, I want to go to heaven. But you can't cut Jesus into pieces and say he's my savior and he's not my king. He comes as a savior king. In your life, what does this mean, total submission to him? 
obedience. If you understand Him as King, less questions and more obey. If you understand Him as King, guess what? You go to bed at night when there's riots in the streets, sickness sweeping the world, and everything apparently falling apart, because it's not. Because the King recognized by the wise men is ruling everything now. More than that, in the preaching of the Word from Matthew chapter 2, He's declaring that rule and glory to you now. He's saying on that day it was shrouded. Now it's on view for the world. Your response is going to be one of a few things, either direct hatred, I won't submit to Him. Skepticism, it's the same thing. Or apathy. So what? But your response ought to be, the only true response would be worship. You fall on your face before Him and you give Him your very best, all that you are and all that you have. You offer yourself as a living sacrifice. You submit to Him in everything. You say, Lord, teach me your will. Be my King. Rule, defend, and carry me and my children after me. You were born a child, yet a king. And you humbly worship his unparalleled majesty and glory. For now he wields the scepter of rule over the universe. You sing that hymn, take my life, let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to Thee, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Lord, take me, save me. I submit myself to You in everything. You are my Savior and my King. Let's pray. Lord, as we think on these things, we confess we've often had low and small thoughts of you, especially at this time of year when so many focus simply on a babe in a manger and forget the trajectory of your earthly pilgrimage in existence was to ascend to heaven and to build a kingdom that cannot be shaken. One day to deliver the kingdom to your Father, that all that one day all things would be united again under your perfect rule in every way. The wicked destroyed, the righteous lifted up. And a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells established the full end and purpose of your coming. What we think of your reception and rejection as a little child. We think of the same at the cross. Lord, we pray that ours this morning, having heard of your glory would be that gracious, grace-worked, submissive reception of you by faith and trusting you for everything and submitting our lives to you in everything. Lift our eyes to see your glory, Lord Jesus. We confess you as our Savior and King. O Father, we pray in your Son's name, at your right hand now. Amen.